Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySelfland.com. Working away through Romans. Last week I got through Romans chapter 2. Uh, today we're going to do Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. By the way, welcome here for those of you who are here for baptisms. We always do our baptisms at the end of the service so you can't leave. You have to listen to me preach. And, uh, and that was sort of, a, sort of a thing we planned out there. And... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, but we're working through the book of Romans. We are going to get to baptisms later, which we always love. Amazing testimonies and stuff. And today, Romans chapter 3. I should have put a bookmark in here. I have so many bookmarks in my Bible. I'm starting to lose where I am. But anyway, 3 verses 1 to 20. I'm going to read you the first eight verses. We'll pray, and then we'll get into this message. I love the book of Romans. I, I love all the books in here, actually. But, but the book of Romans is a, is a goodie. And, uh, and so let's read. And Paul says this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray, and then we'll start to look at this uh, chapter of Romans here. Father, I thank you again for this church. I thank you that I get to be a part of this church family. I thank you for the many answers to prayer that you are giving us, Lord, how church renewal is spreading more and more and churches are being impacted, how we are growing spiritually, how you're looking after us, the joy we uh, experience more and more here in this church family as we love each other more and more and serve each other more and more. It's just wonderful and it's a blessing. And I pray today, Lord, we're looking forward to baptisms and the testimonies and the way that you are changing lives here in this family. And uh, Father, I pray that now during this, this message time, as we look at this, at this uh, book of Romans that you inspired, I pray that you would touch our hearts. Again, so many people here in so many different places, some in need of an encouragement, some in need of a word of warning, some in need of, a, of, a, of, of hope, uh, a promise, something. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak to each of us as individuals in a unique way through this one message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, quick recap of last week. Romans chapter 2. The main idea, and and of course, again, lots of Christians um, totally intimidated by the book of Romans. Uh, Paul does get philosophical. He answers questions in many cases that we aren't asking, which is one of the reasons uh, that there's a lot of things in the book of Romans that Christians sometimes don't get, and they're like, why is Paul talking about this? I remember a number of years ago reading through the book of Romans in my devotions one time, and I was I was, I finally, I just said, Lord, I got to be honest with you. Why is he talking about this? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, of course, the Lord is gracious, and I wasn't being disrespectful about it. I know that you inspired this word, and we need it. But why is he talking about some of these things? And so in order to understand the book of Romans, you have to understand some of the background, who he's talking to, and why. And in particular, as we're going through the book of Romans, and we've talked about it already a number of times in the first few messages, is Paul is talking a lot to Jewish unbelievers, 
and he's answering their questions, okay? And so until you get that, until you understand what their questions uh, were, a lot of Romans won't make sense. But the cool thing is, once you understand what their questions were, even though we don't necessarily have all the same questions, it's Holy Spirit inspired. There's lots of stuff there for our, us to discover and apply to our own lives. And really, the book of Romans, once you start to understand the questions Paul was answering, it actually isn't that complicated. And I think I've been showing that so far, is that it, I mean, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, it really isn't that complex. It is understandable. Um, and uh, and that we're going to keep looking at that. But a quick review of Romans chapter 2 is, is that in Romans chapter 2, Paul was trying to smash this false sense of security that many of the religious Jews in his day had. And they had this false sense of security that they did not need salvation. They didn't think they needed Jesus. They didn't think they needed grace. They didn't think they needed forgiveness because they were Jews. And, and so there was this covenant with their forefather, Abraham, which we're going to look at in just a couple of minutes. But there was this covenant that God had made with Abraham. And then he said, the sign of the covenant forever is circumcision. And they thought, well, we're in the covenant. We're in the covenant with Abraham. We're Jews. We're circumcised. Therefore, we're saved. And so Romans chapter 2 Again, to a lot of Westerners, we're going, why does Paul have to make this point? I mean, Romans 1 makes the point real clear that we all need to be saved. We're in desperate need of saving. Romans chapter 2, we're going, why does he need to make all these points? And the reason is because there's these, there's these self-satisfied, smug religious Jews who are saying, we don't need Jesus, we don't need grace, we don't need the gospel, we're already saved. And so Paul is smashing their false sense of security, saying, actually, you might be part of the Abrahamic covenant, but you're not saved. So now in, in chapter 3, it's just carrying on with the argument out of chapter 2. And so coming out of chapter 2, where Paul says, you're not saved just because you're a Jew, there's immediately a Jewish objection, which is then, well, what was the point of the whole covenant with Abraham then? Okay? Because you've got to remember, these people are steeped in the Old Testament. That was their scriptures. They were steeped in the Abrahamic covenant. That was like some of the most important scriptures in the whole Bible to them was this covenant that God made, in, and it's repeated in several different places and expand, expanded on between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 17. But this idea that God had made a forever covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So after Paul gets through chapter 2, immediately there is a Jewish response to that argument, which is, well, if we're not saved just by being Jews, what was the whole point of Genesis chapter 12 through 17, this covenant that God made with Abraham? What's the value of it? Okay, and so Rev, uh, Romans 3 verse 1, Paul is stating their objection to them. He says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? What's the point of it? If God made a covenant with us and we're still not saved, what was the point, okay? So he's going to answer that. Now, in order to answer it properly, though, I have to give you a little more information. Paul skims over it very quickly in, in Romans 3. He answers it later on in Romans chapter 9 again. But I don't want to jump ahead to Romans 9 yet. We're going to get there in, in, in some time, okay? Um, for right now, I go, I'll give you a little bit of background, and then, uh, then that way when he skims over it, it'll, be, it'll make more sense to you. Okay? So how is it that God can make a, a covenant with Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants forever and those descendants not be Christians? Well, or not Christians, sorry, but not be saved, not, be, not have eternal life, not be forgiven of their sins. And in order to understand how to answer that, we have to go back to Genesis and we actually have to see what the Abrahamic covenant was all about. Okay? 
Now, some of you are going, why are we talking about the Abrahamic covenant? I've got financial difficulties. I've got marriage problems. Like, let's talk about something relevant to me, right? Uh, first of all, this is going to be very relevant to you. It's the Word of God. Amen. Second of all, a lot of us, we want to approach the Bible from our own problems rather than enter in uh, submitting to God and saying, we want to enter in on your terms. This is what you wrote. And you can't grasp this thing until you grasp some of these issues that the, that the Word is, is grappling with. And there's a whole level of maturity you can't go to in your heart so long as you keep trying to approach God from your angle alone. At some point, we have to just approach the Word and say, God, if it's important to you and you say it's important for me, this is food, your Word sustains us, so we want to get into this. And some things are going to open up to you in the Word of God when you begin to understand some of these covenants because it's really all based around these things. So the Abrahamic covenant, if we go back to Genesis chapter... I forget, and I don't have it written on this page. 17, we're starting in 17. I knew we were going to go to chapter 12 too. Whew. Genesis 17, verse 7, we're going to see part of it. And it's, it's restated in a few different places between Genesis 12 and 17. But let's see what the covenant was that God actually made with Abraham. Okay? And so God says here in, in verse 7 of chapter 17, And I, that's God, will establish my covenant between me and you, that's Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. See, I, and I underline it there. Just notice the everlasting bit. God did not make a temporary covenant with Abraham. He made a permanent, eternal, everlasting, forever covenant. Okay? Only God can make covenants like that. I mean, even the biggest covenants we make here on earth are when we get married and we say, till death do us part. Right? Because that's as far as we can go with a covenant. God said to Abraham, I'm making one with you and your descendants, everlasting. Okay? He keeps going. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 8, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting, not a temporary, an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So the first part of the covenant with Abraham had to do with land. God said to Abraham, I am giving to you this land, which the land of Israel, what we call it now at the time, it was the land of Canaan, okay? And God said to Abraham, I'm giving this to you and your descendants forever, Okay? And it's not temporary, it's forever. By the way, here we are 4,000 years later, who is still in the land of Israel today? The Jews. Israel's still there today. They even left for 1,800 years. They were booted out by the Romans. They came back in 1948. Well, actually, they were coming back before them, but they officially took control in 1948. That is a miracle to me. That, that miracle to me is proof of God. People say they want to see miracles in order to believe in God. That is a miracle. It's never happened before in history. How many other nations and languages and peoples have come and gone in the last 4,000 years? The Jews have remained constant. Even when they were out of their land, they were brought back to their land. They never lost their identity, and they're in the land today. And this is just part of this covenant. God said, I'm giving it to your uh, descendants forever, not just, not just temporarily. Very important. And, of course, the sad thing is, a little aside to this message, it's really not a key to what we're talking about in Romans 3, although it will come up again in Romans chapter 9. The sad thing is today, many Christians today are denying this fact. Increasing number of Christians 
uh, today believe that either the, however they say it, they use different lingo, but uh, that the church has replaced Israel, that Israel no longer has a special place in God's covenant, and that the Jewish people actually don't have a right to the land of Israel. A lot of Christians today increasingly believe that, but I want you to know what that passage said up there before. God did not say to Abraham, I'm giving you this land and your offspring this land until the new covenant. Did he say that? Did he say, I'm going to give it to you and your offspring until I make a new covenant? No, he said, forever, even after the new covenant, even after the New Testament comes, comes along, the Jewish people, that's their land forever that's part of the covenant with Abraham. Now, there's other parts to it as well. If we go to Genesis chapter 12, and by the way, if there's one thing that we can know about the God of the Bible, it's this, that he is not a liar, he is a promise keeper. I mean, all of our confidence is based on that. If God can break a promise to the Jews, if he can say to Abraham, I give this land to your descendants forever, and then not keep that promise, how horrible would that be for us? What confidence could we have that he would keep any of his promises to us? To think that the God of the universe could actually lie, could actually say to Abraham, I'm going to give this to you forever, and then not follow through on his word. I mean, the universe would split apart. Hebrews 1 says that he keeps the universe together by the word of his power. If he could break his word, I mean, that would just be devastating. He's a promise keeper, and we can count on that. And his promise keeping to the Jews is also confidence for us of his promise keeping to us. So the land. That, so the first part of God's covenant with Abraham is just the covenant to give the Jewish people the land forever. The second part of the covenant is uh, Genesis 12, verse 1. And again, this, this covenant is repeated and expanded upon and, and set in different ways and repeated in various places between Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. I'm just picking out two places. Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is another part of the covenant. God said to Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless all the nations. Okay, all the other nations, all the Gentiles. We're Gentiles. He said, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. This is also part of his covenant. Now, um, what does this blessing entail? Well, this is clearly messianic. Uh, Jesus, who came to save all of us and forgive us of our sins, was a Jew. He came through the Jewish people. Amen? And so part of the covenant was God said, I'm going to save the world through your offspring, okay? And so it's through the Jewish people that we got Jesus. It's through the Jewish people that we got the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, so through the Jews comes, and Paul's going to make this point again in Romans 9, but we get the covenants, the promises, the scriptures, and the Messiah all came through the Jews. That's all because of the Abrahamic covenant. So God made a covenant with Abraham, and basically that covenant meant two things. Number one, your descendants get this land forever. And number two, the Messiah, the scriptures, I'm going to bless the nations, I'm going to save the world through you. Which did God keep his end of the bargain? Okay. So has God kept the, the Abrahamic covenant? Yes. That was a promise. He said it's forever. He hasn't broken it. But I want you to notice something. What is not in the Abrahamic covenant? Okay? What is not in the Abrahamic covenant is God does not say, I will automatically forgive all of your descendants of their sins. Does he say that? 
He just, he says, I'm going to give you the land forever. I'm going to bless the nations through you. But he does not say, I'm going to forgive you of all your sins. Your descendants can live however they want, and I'm going to forgive them and save them. That's not true. He says, I'm going to give them the land, and I'll bless the world through them. He does not say he's going to save them. So here's the thing. The Jewish, some of the religious Jews had taken this covenant to mean we are God's people regardless of how we live. And Paul is making this point in various ways at various places throughout the book of Romans is the Abrahamic covenant doesn't cover that. It covers, God gave you the scriptures. It covers the Messiah was a Jew. It covers the land. It does not cover the forgiveness of sins. You, Jew, and Paul's talking to his fellow Jews. He's saying to these religious Jews, is, you guys need saving just as much as any Gentile. So yes, there's some benefits to the, to the Abrahamic covenant, but it doesn't cover salvation, forgiveness of sins, and all of that. So now we go back to Paul's question. Is there any benefit to being a Jew? Okay? And the answer is yes and no. And sometimes people read in, in the book of Romans and they're saying, Paul is talking out of both sides of his mouth. He seems to contradict himself. Okay? So is there any advantage to being, or is there any benefit to being a Jew? Well, if we put verses 1 and 2 up there again, in verse 2 he says yes. So is there a value to being a Jew? And he says yes, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he's talking about the scriptures. They were given the scriptures. Now, that is a huge benefit. The rest of the world is stumbling around in darkness. They have no idea who God is. They have no idea, you know, right versus wrong. The Jews got to have the scriptures. They got to have the light. That is a huge advantage. Okay? So on the one hand, Paul says yes. And then Paul lists more advantages in Romans 9. He's just skimming through right now. But then if we skip ahead to verse 9... He then turns around and says, no, there's no advantage to being a Jew. He says it again, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So here's where people go, is, Paul, you're contradicting yourself. He's not contradicting himself. This is just what Paul likes to do. He's thinking through this thing thoroughly. So he says, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Well, in certain ways there are. You guys got to have the scriptures. You guys got to keep the promises. You guys got the first crack at the Messiah. In fact, the Messiah is one of you. So there are some advantages. But when it comes to being saved and being forgiven of your sins, there's no advantage to being a Jew. There is some advantage over here, but when it comes to what really, really matters, which is, are your sins going to be forgiven on Judgment Day, and will you spend eternity with God in heaven or in hell, there's no advantage to being a Jew. A Jew and a Gentile are exactly the same. Both are under the power of sin. Both are in need of Jesus. Abraham can't save you from your sins. Only Jesus can do that. So Paul is saying, you Jews have a covenant over here, and it's really good for what it's good for, but you still need the new covenant. You need the covenant of Jesus' blood to forgive you of your sins in order to be saved. Jews and Gentiles both are under the power of sin and in need of that. All right? Now he's going to keep going. And my throat is a little dry. So let's all take a deep breath. Do some relaxation techniques here. Okay. Verse 10. So now Paul keeps going. So both Jews and Greeks are under sin. We're all in the same boat. And many Westerners are going, duh, I could have told you that two chapters ago. Well, bear with them. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. Now Paul is going to quote a bunch of the Old Testament scriptures because when you're, when you're making a point and part of your point is being made to Christians and part of it is being made to religious Jews, you want to use heavy doses of the Old Testament because that's the only scriptures that these guys recognize. Okay. So he says, as it is written, and now he's going to quote, I think, nine different passages of the Old Testament to show how everybody is messed up, Jews and Gentiles both. 
So as it is written, most of these quotes are from the Psalms. I won't bother telling you where each one comes from. Most of your Bibles will have a cross-reference if you look it up. But as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's us. That is every human being on planet earth apart from from the saving grace of Jesus. Every human being is wicked and evil like that. Now a lot of us have heard this preached before, this kind of thing that we're all wicked apart from Jesus. And so we all just kind of nod our heads. But the truth of the matter is, and even as I was reading again this week, Is it true that most of us don't feel that wicked? Like, really, Paul? Like, it seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? Because most of us actually just don't feel that wicked. I mean, mean, yeah, technically, I guess I know I'm wicked. I needed Jesus. But we don't feel that wicked. I mean, the venom of asps is under my lips, full of curses and bitterness. Feet are swift to shed blood. A lot of us, I don't think, connect with this passage because we're brought up in a culture that teaches us to think that we're okay. And part of it is we subconsciously compare ourselves constantly. So, I mean, who's in the news recently? I mean, ISIS has been all over the news doing horrible things, terrible things. And you can't almost help. It's not even that we consciously do it, but you you read the news, you see people doing horrible, tragic, terrible things, and you almost feel to yourself, now those are bad people. Like, Like, those are wicked people. Subconsciously we feel like, like, we're a, lot, we're a lot more decent than that. Like, we're a lot nicer than that. That's wickedness. We're kind of more just a decent country of people over here. We don't, we don't most of us, I, I'm betting, most of you here today woke up this morning, you had no desire to murder anyone, at least I hope. You, most of you came to church here, you did not struggle with wanting to violently attack someone here in church. You don't. And so basically what our culture teaches us is, if I'm not murdering anyone, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to hurt anyone, then I'm really not that bad, okay? But here's Paul, first three chapters, not just here, but the first three chapters, we've seen this over and over again, he's making this point that we are absolutely, desperately wicked. But we just, I think most of us don't really connect with this passage. And, and that's a problem. And one of the reasons it, it's a problem is because if you don't have an appropriate sense of your wickedness, you're not going to have an appropriate appreciation of the new covenant with Jesus and grace. So I think what happens is if you don't have an appropriate, if we don't have an appropriate understanding of who we are apart from Jesus, and I'm not talking about in a self-condemning way where we, you know, roll around the floor and just, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate myself. But if we don't have an appropriate understanding of how desperately evil and wicked we truly are, each of us here, not just those bad people in the news, but each of us here this morning. What will happen is when you get saved, you're not going to appreciate it. You're not going to cling to Jesus. I think this is, this is part of, I mean, there's so many complex. You can't shrink down uh, huge problems to one oversimplified thing. But certainly part of what we see in a lot of the apathy in the church in the West Part of that is you've got all these people who have been saved cheaply. And what I mean by cheaply is we really don't feel that we're that wicked. So when we get saved, it's like, well, that's great. You know, Jesus kind of bumped me up, topped me up the rest of the way. 
There's not this sense of desperate urgency. I was actually on my way to hell. I am actually, apart from Jesus, a horrible, wicked person, deceitful and sinful and wicked beyond imagination. I desperately needed grace. When you have an appropriate view of your wickedness, when you get saved, it's a much bigger deal. You cling to Jesus. You appreciate grace. You don't abuse grace. A lot of people today abuse grace. A lot of Christians use grace as a license to continue sinning. Part of the reason is because they never realized how wicked they were and what they were saved from. So Paul's trying to communicate a truth that is not just for our heads. He's trying to communicate something that by the Holy Spirit needs to be revealed in our hearts that actually we desperately, desperately need Jesus. We should be able to get up every morning and be so thankful. Thank you for what you've done for me. And so it's interesting to me the sins that Paul points out here because he actually, he actually even 2,000 years ago was getting us already because many of us, again, we get up in the morning and we don't feel that wicked and the reason we don't feel that wicked is because we don't want to murder anyone. That's not the sin we struggle with. But I want you to notice here, he doesn't spend a lot of time on murder. He does spend a lot of time on sins of the what? Mouth. And I want you just to notice up there, I'm just going to underline them. He says there, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. When Paul wants to prove to us how wicked we are, he doesn't need to go to murder. That one's obvious. And many of us just plain don't struggle with it that much. When he wants to go with how wicked we are and how much we need Jesus' grace, he goes to sins of the mouth. He says, you want to see how sinful and wicked you are apart from Jesus? Look at your mouth. Look at the things you say. Mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The venom under the lips. Tongues that deceive. Throats that are an open grave. You know, if we played, I I was thinking about this this week. One of the reasons we don't really feel that bad, I mean, we kind of know when I I say bad things with my mouth, that's not really good. But again, those are kind of decent sins. Those are kind of acceptable sins. I mean, that's an easy one to to confess itself. Well, I, I think I haven't been too good with my mouth recently. Oh, brother, let me pray for you. But actually, sins of the mouth are serious. That's what Paul's saying here. Sins of the mouth are actually the proof that we desperately need Jesus and that we're on our way to hell. But do you know what would capture it for us to really feel how bad the sins of our mouth are? One of the reasons we don't feel bad about the things we say is because most of the things we say just kind of get forgotten and they never get held out into the light and they never get exposed. But if we were actually held to account for the things we said in front of a bunch of people, you would right away feel how wicked, we, wicked what we say is often. So can you imagine if we, on a Sunday morning just like this, if we somehow had this special machine by the power of the Holy Spirit that we had videotape of everything you've ever said? Yeah, I already heard a few people go, oh boy. (laughs) Can you imagine if we had a machine like that and we came in here on a Sunday morning and we played every bad thing you've ever said up on the screens here, all three of them right across. And we all sat here and heard you say things behind your spouse's back behind your friends' backs, people you say are your friends, and they're sitting all around you right now, and they hear you saying things. They hear you exaggerating stories to make yourself look better, to make somebody else look worse. They hear you saying bitter things. They hear you say, lashing out at people you love in anger. If we could all hear, I'm telling you right now, that would scare me to death. I can't imagine having all of my words from my life 
whether it be perverted things, angry things, gossipy things, slanderous things, played up here in front of all of you, that'd be horribly shameful. I don't feel bad about those words usually because they just kind of went off in the dark and I was able to forget about them. But if we put them up here in front of all of you, we would all suddenly feel the gravity of how wicked often our words actually are. The things we say with our mouth, if they were ever exposed to the light, we would feel the wickedness of what they are. And Jesus had a lot to say about our words. Matthew 12, 36 to 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now this is a verse that should keep some of us up at night. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Think about that. The scenario I just played out for you, it's actually not an imaginative scenario. It's actually going to happen someday. On Judgment Day, we're going to give an account of every careless word we spoke. And I don't know how many spectators there are going to be, but I'm betting it's more than in here. We're going to be standing before God and who knows how many angels and whatever giving our account on Judgment Day, and he's going to play back every careless word we spoke. Now, some of you, time out, you're going, Ah, I thought we were forgiven! Right? Oh, boy! Well, it's true. If you repent, absolutely, God says, I remove your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. He forgets about them. You're not going to stand. If you, you, you fall down on your face and you say, oh, Jesus, I'm so, Lord, I just hate that. And you confess and you, and you press into him. He is not, those, those words that you, you've repented, that's gone. That's not getting played at judgment day. But here's what happens. Lots of people just call themselves a Christian. You just pray a prayer. And then you go on selfishly and unrepentantly speaking careless words, tearing down political leaders, I've been there. Yes, done that. Tearing down other people, slandering, gossiping. And Jesus says, you carry on in that unrepentantly. Here's something to think about. I'm playing it all back on Judgment Day. And I don't know how many spectators are going to be, but the most important one is God himself. You're going to stand there and you're going to give an account and it's going to reveal what's in your heart. See, that's the thing. The reason why our words are so serious is because our words are a reflection of our heart. Just the verses right before 36 to 37. Jesus said this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So Jesus says, your words just show what your heart is. So when you, when you speak behind people who you call your friends and you speak behind their back, it doesn't just, it, those aren't just little words that they don't really matter. It shows that you are disloyal and disloving and backstabbing. That's what it shows. And when you tear people down, those aren't just words that go out there and it's not a big deal because at least you don't murder people. It shows you're rebellious and disrespectful and you don't fear God. I know the, the, when I'm walking closest with God, that's when my mouth is in the most check. When I'm not walking closely with God, words just come out. I don't even feel bad about them. But when I have been in the presence of the Lord, words will come out and it could just be, can you imagine, think about this, could you imagine standing in the very presence, the throne room of God right now? And we will someday. That's judgment day. When you stand, see, we, we compare ourselves to the wrong things. We think, well, I'm not that ISIS guy. I'm not murderous, rampaging, crazy evil. 
But we're comparing ourselves to the wrong thing. If you were in the throne room of God right now, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah goes into the throne room of God. The first thing he screams, he screams out, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. And he was a good man. He wasn't a bad man. He was a prophet. He loved God. He came into God's presence for one moment. He screams, woe is me from a man of unclean lips. Just the thought of saying something impure or unclean in the presence of Jesus, it was like I'd rather die. Woe is me, I'm done for. See, when you realize how holy God is, if you stood in the presence of God right now, the very thought of just saying something slightly slanderous, that guy you were in business with or that guy you were working with or that person at your family that did something to you, and you would, just the thought of saying something even slightly negative about them would be horrifying in the presence of Jesus. You wouldn't even dare want to do it. Woe is me, he says. Woe is me from a man of unclean lips. He's a holy God, and our mouth shows where our heart is. So, in Paul, so Paul in Romans 3, he casts his net out there, and he says, we're all wicked and, needy, and in need of saving, and one of the ways you can see it is by what comes out of our mouths. And then he goes on, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So now we're actually coming up to the solution. We've been working our way through these first three chapters of Romans. We're actually finally coming up to the solution. So far, Paul's just been telling us the problem, the problem, the problem, and we're in big trouble, and we're wicked, and we're in desperate need of saving. Now he's got these two verses, and in verse 21, he's going to start talking about the solution. But before he gets the solution, he first has to, get, he first has to knock something out of the way that isn't a solution. And that is the law. Okay? Before he can get to what the solution is, we're going to get there to Jesus in just a little bit, and especially in the next message, but he first has to lay aside what the solution is not. So we're all very wicked, and we can see how wicked we are, even from what proceeds from our mouth. It's like we are not ready to meet God. We are not ready to meet God. So now anybody who's listening, the Holy Spirit is impacting. It's like, oh my goodness, we need something, we need something, we need help, I'm in big trouble, I've said a lot of bad things in my life, I'm going to stand in front of God on Judgment Day, so tell me what the solution is, and the first thing he has to say is what the solution is not. He says, and you can't fix this problem just by doing good things. You can't fix this problem just by obeying the law. Can't do it, okay? Now, of course, I want to say just a couple things about the law, because a lot of Christians don't know anything what they're talking about when it comes to the law. They don't think about who Paul is talking to, he makes a number of comments about the law in the New Testament that a lot of people now take as negative. They think this means we don't have to obey the law. This means the law doesn't matter anymore. All that sort of stuff. That is not what Paul's saying here. Paul is not saying here we don't have to obey the law. I mean, clearly, it's still important that we not murder, right? It's still important that we not covet. It's still important that we not lie. It's, it's still important. How many of you think it's important to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How many? So half a dozen of you. Okay, good. Did you know that's in the law? That's Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not the New Testament. I mean, it is the New Testament too, but that's the law. The law says I have to love God with everything in me. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not just the New Testament. That's the law. 
Is it still important to love your neighbor? Yes. So the law is still there. The law is important. The law shows us the difference between right and wrong. Paul is not making a statement here that we don't need the law. He's not making a statement here that the law is bad. He's not making a statement here that we don't have to obey the law. He's making the statement that the law can't save you. It's made for a different purpose. Okay? So what is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul tells us in here. I'm going to underline it there in the last line. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay? The law was never meant to save you and me. Some Christians today have this idea, like in the Old Testament, people got saved by obeying the law. That is not true. How could anyone be saved by obeying the law? Christians today have this idea, like the Old Testament was God trying to save people by the law. That didn't work. So he had to come up with a new plan and do the Jesus on the cross thing. Absolutely false. God knew right from the very beginning that everybody, Abraham, Moses, Cain, Adam, everybody would need to be saved by Jesus' blood. God knew Jesus was going to have to die on the cross before he created human beings. That was not plan B. That was plan A all along. The Old Testament is not the story of how God tried to save the Israelites by works and it didn't work. I'll show you that in Romans 9. In Romans 9, Paul actually says that the Jews were supposed to follow the law by faith. It, they were always supposed to be saved by faith, even in the Old Testament, not by works. Christians have these muddled ideas about the law now, that the law was, was God's busted up idea, now he has a new idea. No, the law was never given to save people. The law was given to be a light. It was given to be a light to show us right and wrong. What is sin? Now, of course... Even without the law, because we're made in God's image, we all have sort of a, a vague notion of right and wrong in us. It's true. Uh, you look at, you know, you know, human civilizations throughout history, the vast majority of them have all known murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, lying is wrong, you know, hurting children is wrong. It's, that's pretty uniform throughout human history. Most cultures, civilizations, even if they never heard about the Bible, even if they never knew about God the way we know him, they, they knew those, they, they had a vague sense of right and wrong. Isn't that true? Because that's imprinted in us, that's God's moral law, because we're made in his image. But here's the thing, that vague notion inside of us of right and wrong, it's not very strong. It's very weak, okay? It's, it's like a person kind of feeling their way around the dark. I know there's something here, I know there's kind of right and wrong, but I'm not too good at discerning what it is. And cultures that don't have the law, don't have God's law, end up in many depraved places. Even if they have a kind of a general sense of right and wrong, they end up in depraved, wicked places very often. So what the law does is the law turns on the light and it just makes it clear. What is a vague sense inside of us that certain things are right and wrong, when you turn on the light of the law, the law comes and says, this is wrong, this is right, suddenly it's crystal clear. It's a hundred times brighter. It just makes total sense. Okay, it's like, oh, that's right and that's wrong. Absolutely, okay? But it doesn't save us. Knowing what is right and wrong doesn't save us. It's kind of like this. You know, some time ago, a few weeks ago, I went into uh, Eden's room. My daughter's share a room in the basement and I was going to go kiss Eden goodnight and it was dark in there. And so I went in there, I, you know, I opened the door and I walk in and also I'm stepping on stuff, stuff's crashing. I'm down, ow, ow, Eden's crying. You broke my Playmobil down. And, and, uh, and I'm like, what do you got lying on the floor kind of thing? And then, oh, I mean, honey, what do you have lying on the floor? And I turn on the light and there's this, this elaborate city uh, laid out on the floor, which I could not see in the dark, okay? 
And so she's crying, and I, oh, just it was one of those nights, right? So you're, you're comforting her, and, and it's all good. And so the light was very helpful in that case to see. I couldn't, without the light, I couldn't see. I'm kicking things. I'm stepping on things. My foot hurts. Her toys are broken. It's all, it's not good, okay? You turn on the light, you can see. Now, here's the thing, though. The light doesn't, doesn't clean up the mess, does it? Like, I don't, I don't turn on the light and then get mad at the light. Oh, you stink, light. You don't even clean this mess up, Right? That light was not intended to clean the mess up. It was just intended to, me to, to show me that there's a mess. An MRI, you know, you go for an MRI, and an MRI can, can, can find some kinds of cancers, right? So you go to the doctor, you make an appointment, and you go on the MRI. Now, the MRI can show you if you have cancer, certain kinds, I guess, or whatever, but it can't cure the cancer. It can just show you if it's there. It can't do anything about it. Okay, it's the same with the law. Now, that doesn't make the MRI machine bad. It doesn't mean that the MRI machine failed. You failed. I'm never using you again because you can't fix cancer. That's not what it was made for. It was made to show me if I have cancer. Then I got to go and get treatment for the cancer. It's the same with the law. The law never failed in the Old Testament. God never designed the law to fix the mess. The law was designed to shine the light on the mess. And we were supposed to look and go, oh, that's right and wrong. And then go, oh my goodness, I fall short of the glory of God, and then go to God by faith and beg him for mercy. That's what the law was supposed to do to us. Now, unfortunately, and this is what Paul is writing against over and over again throughout the New Testament, which is why people get this negative view of the law now, but we don't realize who he's speaking to. Paul doesn't hate the law. We're going to actually see him say a number of positive things about the law in Romans. But Paul is coming against this idea. See, the, the religious Jews had in their pride missed it, they had taken the law as a light, and then they figured, well, the way we're going to fix this problem is we're just going to try really, really hard. We're just going to try really, really hard to obey the law, and that's how we're going to be saved. But here's the thing. Even if you could obey the law really, really well, it still wouldn't fix the issue of your heart. Here's the thing. Even if you're just a really, really amazingly self-controlled person, and you could go a few days or a few weeks, and you could just, I'm just not going to lust I'm not going to look at porn. I'm not going to tell lies. I'm not going to steal. And you just worked at it really, really hard. And even if you could keep your outside actions from doing those sinful actions, like, because we have this sort of a list. These are sinful actions. Lying, stealing, you know, sexual sins, and a few things like that. Those are sins. And if you could just keep yourself from doing that handful of sins, then, then you could do it. That's what the religious, the religious Jews thought. If we could just keep ourselves from doing some of these things, then we'll be fine. But what you don't realize is that sin is so much bigger than just some actions that you and I do. Sin is not just, it is way bigger. Our picture of what sin is is like this big compared to what it really is. We think sin is just, if I can just keep myself from sinning, I'm okay. No, you know what? Even if you could go a few weeks or a few months without doing any of those sinful actions, it wouldn't solve the fact that sin is in your very heart. It is like a disease. Literally, you and I have a sin nature. It is something that is in us. It affects our thoughts and our motives. It, it, it affects everything. And so you might think to yourself, hey, I've gone a few weeks without doing any of these things, without lying, stealing, swearing at someone, or looking at porn. So I haven't sinned in a few weeks. But what you don't realize is the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Have you done that every day? Ah, <laughs> that's big. I'm not a loving person at all. I managed to keep myself from, from lying and cursing at people and murdering people, but I've been totally self-centered. 
I've lived for myself. Have you loved your neighbor as yourself in every single interaction with other people in the last few days? Oh my goodness, not even close. See, we have this list of sins. If I do these things, that's sin. No, no, sin is so much bigger than that. Sin, it's a nature. It's a thing inside of us. It's right in our bones. It's like cancer. It's a disease. It affects the whole way we live. We're frustrated. Many of you are frustrated because I can't love my kids better. I can't love my spouse better. I can't love my enemies. Did you know loving your enemies is a command? If you don't love them, that's sin. Oh my goodness. Wow, now that's hard. You know, the other ones I can kind of grip myself, but actually our, many of us, our whole lives are just selfish. We don't forgive people. We don't love our enemies. We live for ourselves. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves, and we certainly don't love God every day, day in, day out, night in, night out, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reason we can't do any of those things is because we're infected with sin. Sin makes us approach life selfishly. And so when the law shines a light on it, the idea that you could just keep yourself from doing a few bad things and that would be enough is completely false. The law turns the light on us and shows us that we are utterly diseased. It is not in our nature to love. It is not in our nature to forgive. It is not in our nature to put others first and to serve. If we can't do it, it's impossible, which means we all fall short of what God wants from us. We sin in unspeakable minds. God didn't say the most important commandment was, was don't lie and don't look at porn. Those are important things. He said the most important thing, though, is love God and love people. If you don't love people, that's actually the worst sin. If you don't forgive people who hurt you, that's the worst stuff. That's the worst stuff. And so the law can't fix us. What we need is a solution to the sin nature We don't need just a little bit more self-control. We don't need to just try a bit harder to not do this stuff. What we desperately need is a solution that changes us from the inside out, that makes me a new person who doesn't live for myself but lives for others and loves God. That's what we need. And so when Jesus came, none of that's covered under the Abrahamic covenant. You can be in that covenant, the land, the blessing, all that sort of stuff, and not have your nature changed. So the amazing thing about Jesus, we go to the next two verses, and then that's where we're going to have to stop for today, and we'll get to the baptism, which is going to be amazing, but we're going to begin to open up again next week. But Romans 3, 21 to 22 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law and the prophets show you what the problem is. They shine the light. Oh my goodness. I'm in trouble. I am headed for judgment. How many days of my life have I lived for me and not for others and not for God? That's sin. That's wicked sin. How many things have I said with my mouth that are evil, wicked, horrible, gross? I'm going to stand an account on judgment day, and how do I even stop these things? There's no way. I don't know how to become more loving. I don't know how to get a grip on my tongue. Well, that's why Jesus came. Here's the thing about Jesus. He did not just come to forgive us of our sins. Now, that's a really good thing because we've all sinned. I just, what I just talked about now, your sin count in your life just went up from like a few thousand that like you thought maybe you'd sinned a few thousand times in your life to many millions. It just went... <laughs> but Jesus didn't just come to forgive your sins, which is awesome, and that is awesome. That part's awesome. If I repent 
And I turn to him and I cling to him. His grace just washes it away. He doesn't remember that stuff against me. He doesn't hold it against me. But he came to do so much more than that because our problem isn't just that we've accumulated a bunch of sin stuff. Our problem is that we are diseased to the core and unable to do the things to be godly that God calls us to do. So when Jesus came, he didn't just come to forgive us of our past even though he did that. He came to manifest, to manifest the righteousness of God in a human. To manifest the righteousness of God, apart from the law, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law isn't bad, the law isn't canceled, it just wasn't ever meant to save us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And again, we're going to look into this more in the next message when we talk about, when we go into the, the last part of Romans 3. But what I want you to notice right now is this whole Jesus came to manifest the righteousness of God. He actually came to break the power of sin in us, to change the nature of who we are. Salvation is not just a forgiveness issue, it is a transformation issue. Jesus came, when he died on the cross, he took on human flesh, he became one of us and manifested God's righteousness in a human being, someone who is 100% human, and now because of that and because of his death, when you give your life to Jesus, not just you pray a little prayer and it's like a code word and it's magic and now suddenly you're saved. When you give your life to Jesus, when you die to yourself and you come to him, he does not just forgive your sins. What he does is he makes you a new person. He gives you a new nature. You exchange. It's an exchange. My old nature dies. My old Adam nature that is diseased, that is unable to love, that is unable to stop sinning with the mouth, that doesn't serve, that doesn't do any of the things God calls us to be and is unable to do any of those things. When I give my life to Jesus, there's an exchange. I give up this old, diseased nature, which is beyond repair. It doesn't just need forgiving. It needs to be gone. He gives me a new nature. I exchange my old Adam nature. I get a new Christ nature. That's what salvation is. Not just forgiveness, but new nature. The problem is far too big to just get a bit of forgiveness. What the solution has to be is we have to be changed from the inside out. We have to become new people. And so now we're going to do baptism. This is what baptism is about. Baptism is not primarily a symbol of forgiveness. I mean, obviously, that's all included in there. But what happens is we dunk a person under the water. That's the old Adam. That's the old person going in to die. That's what salvation is. If there's not a death, there isn't salvation. It's more, that's why I keep saying salvation is more than just a little prayer. I mean, if, if as part of your prayer you're giving your life to Christ, then that is salvation. But salvation is my old person dies. I'm no longer in charge of my own life. I'm no longer living for myself. I'm no longer trusting in myself. I'm no longer living to please myself. My old self dies so I can live for Christ. And in response to that, you go under the, you go under the water. That's the death of the old person. And you're raised to walk in newness of life, which is this miracle that God does at salvation, which is he gives you a new nature, a new Christ-like nature. And you can now walk like you couldn't walk before. Now, of course, some of you are going, boy, I did that and I'm still messing up. Well, we're going to talk about that in this series too. Paul goes into a whole bunch of that stuff. Why is it that sometimes after we've taken on this new nature, why is it that we still struggle with sin sometimes? Well, we're going to look at all that. But for today, today, all we have to understand is just the miracle that God, Jesus came to manifest the righteousness of God and that righteousness can be us if we give him our lives. But in order for us to experience that newness of life, there has to be a death. John 12, 24 to 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And that includes Christians. If you try to enter Christianity and you're still living for yourself, you still lose your life. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If it dies, it bears much fruit. In order to enter into true life, in order to take on Christ's likeness, in order to have a new nature, we have to die. We have to die to all kinds of things. We have to die to our right to be right. We have to die to our right to hang on to hurts and bitternesses. We have to die to our right to be treated respectfully and nicely, nicely all the time. We have to die to our right to having our lives turn out the way exactly the way we want. We have to die to our right for God to make everything work out nicely for us and not give us pain. We have to die to our desire to control everything. We have to die to our sinful pleasures. We have to die to our desire to be the boss of our own lives and living for ourselves. We actually have to die to ourselves and make Jesus Christ and serving his kingdom the number one important issue in our lives. We actually have to die. To experience newness of life, you must die. Just like baptism shows us. So here's how we're going to end this just before the baptism now. I want you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you have your phone or if you have a pen or paper uh, ready, I think that would be good. But we're just going to listen for a moment. And maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ. I'm going to give you a chance. We're going to pray about that now and you have a chance to do that right now. But many of you have done that before. But many of us aren't living in newness of life right now because we haven't died. We're still trying to hold on to our old life. And so I'm just going to ask the Lord to reveal us. We're just going to quietly, just a moment, we're going to take 30 seconds, 40 seconds. I'm going to listen and I'm going to say, Lord, what is it in my life today that you want me to die to? And then I want you just to write it down. I am dying to this. Or I need to die to this. You know what? At the moment, anytime there's death to your old man, you're going to experience life in your new man. So I want you just to close your eyes now. I'm going to pray and we're just going to listen. I want you to write down whatever the Lord shows you. Lord Jesus, there cannot be life, there cannot be fruitfulness, there cannot be salvation without death. So we are asking you here this morning, each one of us here, we are asking you to show us what do you want us to die to today? What is it you want us to die to this week? It's actually exciting to die to stuff because you just get Jesus' life. I want to pray a prayer. Keep your eyes closed. And we're all going to just, I want you just to repeat this prayer after me. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, this is, this is your opportunity. So I'm going to pray a prayer and I want you guys just all to repeat after me. Just keep your eyes closed. Lord Jesus, I want to give my life to you. 
I don't know what that's all going to mean. But I want you to be Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.